What's going on guys? Welcome to another episode of the podcast Off The Track. As you can see, we've got a brand new studio. We've just invested a bit more money and... <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. No, we've got a special guest today. We're in uh, Sydney and we've got Steve Solomons with us. Yeah. Welcome. Thanks for having me, boys. No worries, man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Steve. That's nothing oh, wrong. man. That's it. <laughs> you deserve the claps. <laughs> I didn't know we could make that sound. Oh, Neither man. I. Oh, so how you going, man? Good, mate. Good. Uh, it's a pretty exciting time of the year. We're now kind of approaching that specific part of the training program where we're gearing up towards racing competition mm. season. So I think, you know, 2020 so far has, has been quite a, a difficult one or an interesting one at, at the very least. Planning and predicting around racing and, you know, do I go to Europe? Do I not go to Europe earlier in the year? Uh, made the decision not to, made the decision to stay here. Obviously, why the winter... You know, I would go in a heartbeat. <laughs> the reason I didn't want to go um, is I knew I was in really good shape. Uh, I started off the season really well. I knew I was fast and I knew with probably six weeks of speed work in, in the heat of Europe that, that I'd be running really, really fast. So, you know, I called my race manager, Nick Badeau, and said, basically look look for races for me over in Europe because uh, I'm ready and I'm ready to run fast. And then when I started training and, you know, the world's kind of still mm. going through through everything with the COVID uh, situation, I just didn't really feel like it was right for me to go, especially knowing that I didn't have a guarantee of coming back into the country when I wanted to. And mm. that to me was the hardest part of the decision because I knew selfishly if I'd gone over to Europe, I would have run fast. I'm like yeah. very confident in that. But I didn't know, I couldn't guarantee in myself that I'd be able to run fast next year because I couldn't plan the training situation. I think we're seeing now, you know, some of the some of the Europeans, some of the athletes that did go to Europe ran phenomenally well. Yeah, you know, Jess Hull ran amazing. Uh, Stewie McSwain has yeah. been unreal. She's got, she's got three Australian records now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they're coming back with, you know, uh, an awesome foundation to set themselves up for next year. But they're also having difficulties coming back. You know, Jess is currently sitting in a hotel quarantining. Uh, oh, I know that the Gregsons um, are having difficulty even coming back into the country. So when the whole coronavirus thing happened and nationals were cancelled and the Olympics were postponed, you know, my coach Penny Gillies and I really were looking towards, okay, everything now is geared towards next year's Tokyo Olympics and mm. we just made the decision that, that, that we should stay stay local and, and, and just prolong the base season, get really fit, get really strong. And when the opportunity comes to leave the country, it's likely that we won't come back in. So yeah. when we do leave next year, we probably it's won't be come for back. A long season. Yeah, yeah. until uh, until after the games. That's probably a good decision, man. I mean, next I year's mean, when it counts. It's 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 yeah. There's probably no wrong decision. Yeah. Um, you know, you definitely couldn't ask Stewie or, or Jess if they had the choice to yeah. leave or not leave. You know, <laughs> what would they do? I they mean, wouldn't take that back. No, they they've raced phenomenally and, and had some some amazing experiences. But hopefully, there's you know there's a large contingent of Australian athletes who didn't who didn't go overseas this year. And, you know, I, I, I can certainly understand and kind of empathise with that decision. Not that when we were watching, you know, the guys who did go overseas that we didn't feel like, ah, oh, like have we made the right choice, yeah. uh, especially when they're running so well and performing so well. But I also think what they were able to do in going overseas was like very important for the entire community, community. and athletics in Australia because it gave us two months of, looking forward to performances done by Australians overseas. You know, oh, yeah. it, it gave us the examples that fueled our energy. I know that I certainly trained harder after watching them run. Um, and 
yeah, I think they they delivered value both to themselves and the entire community by going overseas. So like I'm tremendously admirable of, of that, mm. if nothing so else. So how old are you? I'm 27. So, oh, yeah, probably got another Olympics in you after Tokyo. Is that the we, plan? We hope so. We hope <laughs> yeah. so. You know, you, you never know. You know, I was, I was only thinking the other day that I, I had my first senior national team in 2011 um, and we're now going into 2021 next year. So Where'd you go for that one? To Daegu. Daegu. Yeah. Daegu. Jeez. Um, no, no athletics, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I packed a suitcase full of, um, full of clothes and a suitcase full of books because it was about a month or two before our HSE exams, our final school exams. Oh, wow. So Ooh. It, was, it was a combination of, you know, preparing for my first world championships and also making sure that I wasn't wow. going to fall too far and behind yeah. in my exams. How... How was dealing with that? Like, obviously, you were in like a D1 university. It's a lot of pressure uh, track wise. Like, you got to get the results done and you got to get the uh, studies like done too. Like, how is the that relationship relation in the track and the educational like in, in American universities? How how you deal with that? It's a fantastic question. I think, you know, at the end of the day, personally, I find I'm very good at kind of identifying what I prioritize in life. And then once I'm very clear on what I prioritize, fitting that into a schedule to, to make sure that, that I'm giving enough energy and time to the things that I've decided to Everything. prioritize. So yes, um, competing uh, at Stanford in a D1 school and at Duke in a D1 school, whilst in very rigorous academic loads was tough. And, and there were times where I found it easier than others, you know, across the board, I think it was very doable. It was manageable. You know, days were long. Uh, yeah. Days are busy. You know, I'd, I'd, you know, stay out quite late working. Um, but it also forces you to be productive and, and efficient because you don't have time to procrastinate. So you just yeah. don't do it. So you become very efficient. You become very confident. And you learn. You really, it, it kind of forces this pressure cooker situation where you learn how to study. You learn how to compete. You learn how to focus on the thing or the task at hand, whether that's being at training uh, yeah. and not stressing about a midterm that you've got later that evening or being in the midterm and not stressing about training, um, mm. you know, and, and, and like everything in life, you, you, you learn from, from, from your mistakes your and mistakes. your successes. You know, there was, there was a time uh, where I overextended myself in my, it ended up being my, my last year at Stanford where, um, I, I just, I, I overstepped. I was in 20 units of class, which they say each each unit of class is about three hours of work. So I was effectively in 60 hours a week of of class. And Damn, then, that's a lot. And then I was also, um, I was also a resident assistant in my dorm. So I was kind of like the, one of, one of the student leaders in the dorm. Uh, I was studying for my uh, medical school exams yeah. all at the same time. And I remember getting to the track each session and it was, there was a point in about February where I called my coach um, who was coaching me at, at the time, Irina, who was back in Australia. And I just told her I couldn't run because yeah. I had so much stress and tension in my body that, that we weren't going to be able to prepare for the, for the national. Oh, that's the other thing I forgot to mention is I was trying to qualify for the world championships. Oh. Uh, this is in 2017, which was in London. And so that was just a really difficult time. I was, I flew back to Australia for our national camp uh, championships the day after arriving Saturday, nine hour medical school exam, oh uh, had two days and then had heat semis finals. Um, did you like fly over like back and forth to America or, you, you, or like you were able to do like, um, like 
test like through internet or something like that. Unfortunately, that option? with with this particular test, I could either sit it in only in Washington was the only other place in oh, um, okay. America I could sit it. And I also needed to come back for nationals anyway. Yeah. So it made sense to come back. I wouldn't recommend taking a nine hour <laughs> test after traveling for 14 oh, hours, yeah. but um, we got through it. And then, you know, I, I think that national championships also told me a lot about, you know, how, how I can race, how I can, you know, cause I, I, I came into that championships very underprepared. Mm. Uh, no one knew that I hadn't run um, for about eight weeks. I'd been doing just pool workouts and bike workouts because, as I said, every time I stepped on the track, I just had so much tension in your body. And I feel like that tension is only something that you can recognize once yeah. you've felt it yourself. Oh, yeah. um, so, you know, I was ha- had, had to get through the rounds and had to really rely on the execution that I've been able to bring to the national championships every single time that I stepped on the track up to that point and just mm. had that confidence that I was ready to win um, and that there was no other option for me and I was able to get the job done and that then set me up to, to have a very successful season once I was able to get back into America and get back into normal training and then, um, you know, after the disappointments of missing out on the Rio Olympics the year before, I was able to go to the World Championships in London and that was like a very... Uh, nice reward for what was a quite a challenging period. Yeah. So with um, you talk, you mentioned your goals. I want to I want to get the inside scoop on your goals on both personal life, um, financial, and athletics. I'd like to sure thing. Get, yeah, let's <laughs> <go>. So <laughs> you know, uh, to me, at the moment, you know, athletics is my priority. You know, as I said before, I do a lot. You know, I work full time uh, at Uber on the Uber Eats side of the business. I obviously train um, with the goal of meddling next year in Tokyo. And, you know, there's a bunch of things that, that happen in between and in and around that as well. So when it comes to goal setting for me, the most important thing is being clear of where, what your priorities are and how do they rank. And what I mean by that is, you know, athletics is my number one priority. And and I let that be known very clearly to, to when I was going through the interview stages for, for different companies. And, and for example, I, I have an accommodation at work where at, uh, two o'clock on a Tuesday and a Thursday, I leave the office. I got squad training. Like, if the building's on fire, if the, you know, everyone just understands and respects That's that at two o'clock, Steve's out. Um, and I'll come back online later in the evening and 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 polish up anything that I was not able to do that was that was urgent for the day. Um, but otherwise, I you know, I start work early. I kind of work to my schedules. I'm much more, you know, kind of cerebral, mentally acute in the mornings. So I do a lot of my deep work in the mornings. Um, you know, my, most of my creative work comes at night. So like as a professional athlete and someone who's been doing it for so long, like I've become very self-aware, like, and I'm very confident in my awareness of, of how to get things done. So, you know, but returning to kind of the question of goals, you know, athletics, you know, it's, it's, it's a medal in Tokyo. Um, mm. You know, I had a phenomenal run in London, which, which seems like not that long ago, but, but is it, is approaching, you yeah. know, long ago back in 2012. Um, and the best thing that that gave to me was just the confidence to just go for it. Um, the confidence to, to line up in any race. And, and I've, every race I've lined up in since 2012, I'm lining up as an Olympic finalist and knowing yeah. that I can take on any of these guys in the race. And, and there's like a respect between like each athlete too. Like people know you, like there's like this. And I think mental wise to yourself, you know that you're not, like just one more athlete you're like olympic finalist finalist yeah. so i think that gi- gives you like some extra energy and like without a dequ- i mean the other thing it does though is it it amplifies the fear of failure 
because oh, yeah. you don't want to lose um, yeah. ever, but you don't want to lose as an Olympic finalist. You don't want to be able to give that to somebody. Um, and so, but that's motivating. You know, it's 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 motivating. You know, it it's tough when you know that you're not in shape and there's that potential to lose. But you know, I've found that every time that I've stepped into a race where I'm prepared, like I'm just so confident, I know that things are going to go well. That's easy, but it's it's the races where you're carrying an eagle or you were sick that no one knows that you were sick. Um, you know, that's when things become tough. But that's yeah. when you're kind of forced in this environment to say you're an Olympic finalist, you can get through this, you're going to win, you can win, yeah. and all these guys are trying to beat you and you're you're, you're the one to beat. So there, there, there's a certain amount of um, confidence that that has been able to propagate throughout my time since then that, that I still enjoy today. But, it, but as I said, like there are times, the devil always sits on your shoulder. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I, I one of the things that I've appreciated so much since – making that Olympic final and continuing to represent Australia like I have for the last decade is, you know, when we watch professional sports on TV, we often say like, oh, they're more experienced, you know, like you see Roger Federer on the final of a tennis match or Djokovic or Nadal and, and whoever they're playing, you, the, the commentary is always around, they're more experienced. Um, you know, that's how they're going to get through it. And I, as an athlete say, they're more experienced, but they've got more to lose from it. And it, it's not that yeah. the feeling ever goes away. Yeah. Um, in fact, it gets stronger, but actually in getting stronger, in that fear of failure getting stronger, it just keeps rising you to new levels. So it's not the fact that you've gone and done it before as much as it is because you've gone and done it before, there is more to lose now. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think that there's ever a sense of complacency with a professional athlete where they say, oh, yeah, I've done this before. It's not it's not the end of the world if I lose. That's, mm. that's not the case yeah. that I've seen. It's, it actually fuels you even harder and drives you even harder. So it's a net benefit, but uh, definitely makes things more stressful. Yeah. So how'd you land a job at Uber? It's a good question. Um <laughs> So, you know, are they hiring? (laughs) (laughs) We're always hiring for great talent. Um, You know, when I came back from America, I, um, I started off my studies pursuing uh, a career to be a doctor. Um, And I took an aid trip with my father, who's a, who's a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon in 2014. So that's in family. It's in the family. And, um, and we went to Tonga and I got to scrub in on the operations. I got to handle the medical equipment. I got to hold the wounds open. And I just thought this was, this is the greatest thing ever. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And, um, you know, kind of since that day started pursuing this track of medicine. And then it was while I was at Stanford that I had the ability to just take classes in, in any realm. And, and that's something for those of you uh, listening who aren't familiar with the college system, because I, I was not familiar with the college system before going there, is you apply to a university. You don't apply to a degree like we do in Australia. You don't apply to medicine or physiotherapy or economics. You apply to Stanford, Duke, Florida State, wherever it, well, wherever it is. And then you can take any class that that university has to offer. So while I was at school, I was taking classes in business, in entrepreneurship, in economics, in psychology, in math, in statistics, and all these things that I'm just like, wow, like I love all of these different elements and, you know, cross-pollinate that with being at a university that's a stone throw away from the biggest tech, tech yeah. companies in the world, Facebook's right there, Google's right there, Twitter's right there, Salesforce is right there, Uber (laughs) turns out to be right there. Um, You know, it took me a while, but I did divorce myself from what was keeping me up at night wasn't medical problems, it was business problems. So that kind of transitioned me into the idea that medicine may not be what I wanted to, to do, you know, for the rest of my life, like I thought it was when I was 14. And 
so then once I graduated from Stanford, the question was, do I go on to medical school, which was always my plan, or do I try something else? Um, and that was a scary decision for, for someone who had been so sure of what they wanted That's for a long thing. time to come through. And as I said, like to actually divorce myself and say, hey, I, um, you know, being a doctor, which was very much an external image that people placed on me as well. Uh, people knew that I was a human biology undergrad. It was expected that I was going on to mm. medicine. Um, but I had to find the confidence myself to say, I'm not 100% sure if this is what I want. So what did I do? I kind of did a litmus test in business. I knew I had to do something to, to be able to test if this energy was just a product of my environment. Was it the fact that I was at Stanford, the fact that I was so close to these tech companies, the fact that I had friends dropping out and starting companies while I was in college? Was it that environment or, or was it was it deeper? And yeah. so I was going to do one of three things. I was going to either do a startup myself. Um, I was working on a healthcare analytics company with my best mate, Dylan Moore, at the time, and we were going to pursue that full time. That was the first option. The second was to go work in the management consultancy uh, firm because that seems to be what everyone else was doing at Stanford. So I thought that was probably a, a good option to go. Or the third, which is the one I ended up taking, was going and receiving more of a formal education and business study, um, which is when I went on to a master's of management at Duke um, in 2018. So coming to the end, end of that degree and, and wrapping back to how did I get the start of Uber, I knew that after 2018, I had to, I had to ask myself the question of, of, of if I wanted to continue to run and why I wanted to continue to run because my entire network was built up in America. Um, and I had employment opportunities in America that I still to this day, you know, um, wonder why I didn't take um, in some regards. You know, they, they were kind of those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities uh, to work for some amazing people at some amazing companies. But that whole process, again, like I was saying in the idea of fear of failure is amplified when you've had success. So is when you have these great opportunities thrown to you, you really have to think about why is it that you're either taking it or not taking it. And I decided that there was still more that I wanted to give running. You know, at, at that stage, you know, 2018, you know, I've had a, I'd had a good career. You know, I've been to Olympic Games. I'd been to two yeah, Commonwealth Games. Really I'd been resume. to three World Championships. Like, um, you know, I was the Australian record holder over the 400 indoors. I, yeah, there was a lot to say it's okay to step away. Yeah. But I didn't feel ready. Um, there was still a lot that I wanted to give both personally um, and, and to the community of athletics that I thought I was much better positioned to be able to do that as an athlete and as a relevant competing athlete. So... You know, ultimately, I turned those uh, opportunities down. I knew in my heart that I needed to move back to Australia. I needed to move back to Sydney um, if I was to be able to prioritise Tokyo with the degree of focus and ambition that I wanted to. So I came back to Australia and 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 had started, uh, you know, rebuilding a network. As I said, my entire network was in America, America. and. Um, and I almost had to start from scratch again here. Thankfully, um, I had great connections through through my Cranbrook school that I went to. And it was kind of that classic, you know, networking situation where one, you know, you meet with one person, they'd introduce you to two more people. You'd meet with those two more people and they'd introduce you to another two people. So I was just introduced to this this network of business. You know, I, I applied for jobs across technology companies, investment banking companies, wow. uh, commercial real estate companies, asset management companies, medical tech companies, startups. Um, you know, I really went across the board looking for both the role within a company that, that I, I found challenging and the one that I wanted to prioritize at this time in my career, but then also a company that was going to be benevolent to my um, ambitions and focus on the track. Yeah. And, and that wasn't an easy process. You know, a lot of the time 
in, in, in many instances, it was, it was Steve, we freaking love you, but come, come to us after Tokyo. Or it would be, here's the job offer. And I'd go to HR when I'm signing the papers and say, Hey, you know, manager, you know, Jack said, um, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, we can build into the contract that I leave, you know, because manager Jack's probably going to get promoted at some stage while I'm here. I don't want to have this conversation with every single manager that, um, that I'm working uh, with and, and they just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't build it into the contract. Um, and that was pretty demoralizing yeah. um, because, you know, these were great opportunities at great companies and I just felt wrong. You know, I, I, when it, something I always said in the interview when I, was, when I was speaking in the interviews for the companies was I wouldn't be in your office if I didn't think that I was the best person to do this job and would do it better than 100%. any of the other applicants. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, like I was saying, confident self-awareness is I, I believe if I believe that I can get it done, I'll find a way to do it. And I've got a track record of doing that. And it took um, the head of Uber Eats in, in Australia at the time, um, Beck Nice, to be able to see that. And I was so relieved in my, in my final interview with her. And I said, Beck, I'm going to tell you again, Tuesday, Thursday, two o'clock, I'm out. She just said, I know. And every <laughs> other company was, that was again, like kind of bringing like up the, the, yeah. the red flags. And I'm like... I don't know if she heard me. Maybe she's thinking about something else. Um, and she could see that I was panicked and she just said, Steve, I trust that if you think you can do it and believe you can do it, I believe you, I believe in you. Yeah. So so that's kind of how the, the role came about. I've been there for the last two years working on the, um, the oh, Uber Eats awesome. side of the business. It's and a good like connection, like energy, energy. Like it's awesome. They um, felt your energy and you felt their energy. So it's awesome. I think, you know, I think it's in, important and you, th there are different trains of thought around working full time and competing professionally as an athlete. Track and field is not a money sport. Yeah. Um, and when I say it's not a money sport, I'm not just talking about making hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm talking about being able to support yourself as an athlete to the way that you need to. Um, you know, being a professional athlete doesn't have to be, but it can be expensive if all the things that you're wanting to do are included. You know, you're seeing a massage therapist once a week, it's going to cost you a hundred bucks. You're seeing a physiotherapist once a week, it's going to cost you a hundred dollars. If you've got any strength and conditioning coaches, it's going to cost you between, you know, 70, $150 a session. All of a sudden you've got the MRIs that are inevitably going to come up because you've got some sort of niggle. Uh, you've got all your equipment, you know, you can only get a couple of hundred Ks out of each pair of shoes. Mm. You've got your flights and everything in Europe, even when those are, uh, are paid for at big professional meets. There's a sense of security that you can give in yourself to be able to have the ability to fund all of that. Yeah. Um, and that's been my experience at Uber. So, yes, there is some part of the prioritization where... You know, you question, you know, should I be staying up this late or should I be bringing this amount of stress into my body in something non-athletic related? But when I balance the pros and cons now, I've been doing it for, for two years. Like I'm a huge advocate to, to continue to work or to continue to study through the athletic period because I think it empowers you as an athlete, but then it also gives you, uh, it gives you the leverage of choice. Like you then become the owner of why you're doing something. Um, you know, if, if I... I I find like if you're only doing one thing, you don't have the choice of doing another thing. When you're yeah. doing more than one thing, you have the choice of where you put your time into, where you put your energy, where you put your resources. And to me, that's been really, really empowering to, to my athletics. Oh, that's awesome. Like I, when you talk about that, like I have that, experienced but like not in high level as you, like. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it has to be. Like, yeah. um, and, and my coach, Penny Gillies, has always been very supportive of this. And she always asks and tells her athletes, you can do three things in your life, but that's all you can do. Um, so an example of those three things could be you could have a girlfriend, you can work, 
and you can train or you can study, you can work and uh, you can have a part-time job, you know, somewhere else. But, but basically kind of the rule of three. Yeah. Um, and and I, I find that to be true. Uh, I know that I'm my best when I'm happy and I'm happy when I'm busy. If I'm not busy, <laughs> if I just have to post a, a letter and, and I've got, you know, no, nothing kind of stressing me to do it, I just forget to post a letter. Like um, I enjoy being busy. I enjoy kind of that stress environment having of, it, of yeah. having things to do, having things to get done. Like I like the fact that the days go quick. You know, I wake up in the morning, I feel... Ooh, I feel yeah. ready. I feel refreshed. And by the time that evening comes around, I go, Oh, that was a long day, but, and, and we're going to repeat it tomorrow. And, you know, I, I actually only felt what I believe to be the experience experience of relaxing relaxation. Um, after I finished it at Duke and I had a couple of months off before starting at Uber, I was, um, house sitting for a friend in San Francisco. And I was like, what is this feeling that I have? Um, and I couldn't put a finger on it because I hadn't felt it for so long. And I realized it was just the feeling of being relaxed. relaxed. And I liked that to a point, but there was also, <laughs> there was also a point where I was like, you know, I think I, and I think this is, is something that, that a lot of us can relate to is this feeling of like, am I relaxing too much or, you know, is there some productivity gain that I could be better using my time to, or actually this is really good for me. And I think as an athlete, I have an intuitive sense of the importance of rest. Um, And actually throughout my career now, I take more rest and more days off than I did in the past. And there was a great story behind that, that John Stephenson told me once where um, he told me that there was this very quantitative analytical i think he was a british um british runner and he said every year he he kept a very meticulous training diary as do i and he said every year he would for a long time get injured and he'd look back in his training diary and he'd realize in any given year he spent an average of 25 days injured so he had to miss 25 days of training through injury every single year and he had you know, many, many years of of data to back that up. So what he started doing was he started then saying, okay, if I just know with my history that in any given year, I've got 25 days where I'm injured, why don't I just give myself 25 extra days in the year to decide when I know that my body's pushing it a little bit far and I'm just going to take, I'm going to choose the rest myself. And he did that and he stopped getting injured. Um, And that's very much a philosophy that I've started to take on with my training is the understanding of, when does the body just need a break? It doesn't need to be a big break. It doesn't need to be like an end of season two week break, which is my traditional break. It's Sometimes you know, just one day. It can just be one day and, um, and allowing yourself to be honest. Um, I had a pretty stern conversation with one of my training partners, which we do uh, because we have a great amount of trust and respect with each other. But he had a very stressful week with a uni assignments the week before. And he, he told me he was only sleeping four hours a week. Mm. And I called him out on it. I said, well, you can't train as we had intended and planned to train when you're sleeping half the number of hours that you usually did, you're lucky that you got away with not coming out with an injury. Um, And I think as you get older and injuries take more of a toll on the body and there's a repetitive injuries, like you learn that the best thing that you can do for your training is compound it. Just keep training. Don't take any big breaks. Don't take any big time off with injury. Um, Just keep rolling, keep building, keep performing, keep getting better. And I found that has been like tremendously helpful in, in, in my athletics for sure. Uh, tell us a bit about your Patreon. Yeah, for sure. So this is an exciting thing for me to talk about. Um, you know, for, for a long time, you know, we talked about the idea that there's no money in athletics and, and really 
there's only really two forms of money. There was there's race winning prize money, um, and then there's uh, sponsorships or kind of you know commercial agreements. And yeah. I just I, I was getting like a lot of emails as 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 a lot of you know people with a, 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 a social media following of a you know ten thousand twenty thousand people. You you get product pushed on you or requests pushed on you all the time, um, and. I was looking into these requests and I've got an agent, I've got a manager and there was things coming to me and I just was like, this isn't me. Like, um, you know, this is the value that I can bring from my athletics is, 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 is selling or promoting this particular yeah. product. And I'm like, yeah. I, I don't want to do that. Um, I, I want to support the brands or support the theories or philosophies that I use. I don't want to be used kind of as a, as a model. Um, I want to be used as an advocate for the things that, that I enjoy. And so, I thought, okay, so that's one one side of it is is like I don't there, there are reasons why I want to enter commercial um, contracts and I don't want them to be purely monetary, mm. um, and it's 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 hard to find those opportunities um, in athletics and especially now with the rise of kind of social media and and brands always are going to be able to find someone who's willing to do it for less money or willing to do it for free, yeah, and <laughs> uh, and that's kind of you know I I think I think there is going to become a turning point quite soon where people are going to say i just don't trust it anymore you know i already see it myself like there are some posts mm. um where i'm like i i know because i've got the same email as you that that you're getting nothing for this and you're bringing so much value to the brand like you you've got to capture that value as, as an athlete so you know with the patreon you know it was, it was always in the back of my mind like how could i help deliver value that i wanted to bring to the community um, instead of bringing value that somebody else wants me to bring to their community. And so for those of you uh, listening, watching uh, that aren't familiar with my Patreon, what it basically is, is I decided to set up a private community um, to which I take along my athletic journey and, you know, open myself up vulnerability wise um, enormously. And I know that uh, both of you have, have seen some of that Patreon content and can, can understand that where I want to be able to deliver what I believe is true value to the community. I want to be able to do that in a safe space, in an environment where people are choosing and opting in. And that was a big thing about putting a small money barrier. So it costs about five Australian dollars a month to join which is very, very small, um, but it was enough for someone to say, I want to be a part of this. If I had put it for free and I can already tell you, it's a lot of work that goes into yeah. producing. A, I, you know, I do a weekly newsletter that I do um, and I use the close friends feature on Instagram to talk yeah. directly to the community. And, you know, I want to be able to share ideas. I want to be able to talk about things that aren't spoken about in, in the broader athletic community. Um, you know, Jack, you know, we were, you, you would remember a few, few editions ago, we, you know, we talked about athlete retirement and mm. I, and I, and I shared, and I'm, I'm not going to share too much more on this podcast, but I kind of shared the idea that in the, in the sporting world, we don't talk about retirement in the same way that we do in the non-sporting world. You know, in the non-sporting world, we have superannuation funds. We talk about the idea that probably when we're approaching 65 is going to be the time that we're going to start looking at retirement. We're going to put all these plans in place. Yeah. We're going to have give ourselves a runway to retire. You know, everyone who's, who's exiting the business, not everyone, but, you know, let's call it 99% of people who are making the decisions themselves to retire, so not somebody else making it for them, are doing so with a plan. Yeah, We don't have that in athletics. Um, and, you know, a lot of athletes, the vast majority of athletes retire very poorly. And what I mean by that is because they've, they haven't given thought to what does their life after sport looks like? How is that transition yeah. going to materialise? Um, 
I struck up a, a great friendship and mentorship with Ed Cowan, who um, who used to open the batting for Australia, and and now works at a, a big private equity fund called TDM Growth Partners. And you know, we were talking about how many athletes retire well, and another one of um, my mentors uh, who I've been incredibly fortunate to work with is John Eels, um, and we have the same conversation as well because at some point. Athletics is going to stop for me um, and yeah. it's going to stop for all of us. And there are things that we can be doing today um, that, in my opinion, that can set up that next transition period. It's better. I had a um, you know completely random um, email from from a professional snowboarder uh, in, from Germany, you know, basically, you know, j- just telling me her story and telling me how frightened she is of stopping because she doesn't know what's to do. What to do, yeah. Um, and... You know, that's that's the stuff that I'm trying to bring into my Patreon, trying to open up conversations around, you know, there's going to be parts of the Patreon that, I'm, you know, I describe what's it like the day of an Olympic final. You know, what's it like walking around the Olympic Village when you're watching the seven other people who are going to compete to against you, yeah. you know, to, for the best in the world. Um, you know, there's that element too, but then there's also kind of this broader element of like, how can you leverage the skills that you've spent hours every single week developing as a professional, aspiring professional athlete um, into a future career? Because the self-awareness piece, the time management piece, the competitive drive, the bouncing back from failure, the recovering from injury, all of these things, you know, I always, you know, tell people at work, you know, they'll see me working late, they'll see me working on something hard and they'll say like, I don't know how you do that, how you keep doing that. And I said, guys, this is easy. You should see me on the track when I've got 90 <laughs> seconds, 90 seconds before I've got a 300 meters that I know that my head's going to be pounding, I'm going to be overheating and I'm going to be pouring water yeah. on myself and I'm going to be vomiting <laughs> on the ground. That's hard. That's hard. You know, yeah. do something, do something like athletics. You know, that's why I'm such a believer and passionate you know, person and advocate of people doing more than one thing and also people doing something where they're trying to become the best that they can become at that given thing. Because, you know, the critique can always talk to someone who's not trying, you know, that's something that Twitter has shown, right? Like there are all these people on Twitter who will, um, you know, bash people. You uh, know. Twitter is a no man's land. It, like, it's a no man's land. But yeah. it, you know, and, and that's part of the reason I set up the Patreon is like, I wanted the people in the community to self-select themselves into the community. I don't want some schmuck who's never, you know, put effort into something and worked as hard as I have or empathize with what I'm trying to do. Yeah bring bad energy to, to, yeah, to, to my pursuit. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for that. I, I remember um, very strongly one of, the, one of the most interesting questions that, that I get quite regularly is from parents of, of kids, um, you know, high school level kids. And they say, Steve, you know, my son, John, or, you know, my daughter, uh, Lauren, um, they're good athletes, but they're not great athletes. And like, really, they should just be focusing on their studies. Um, so can you kind of just tell them that, you know, just, just, mm. just, just tell them that they're not going to, you know, make an Olympic team or tell them that they're not going to be able to play um, for the, for the Socceroos. And I say, is that real? I say, I, I, this is really a real question. (laughs) And and I say to them, um, you know, with all due respect, that is, um, and and I'm not a parent, so I can't comment from the empathy lens of a parent, but to me, that would be a huge, huge mistake because the skills that they're learning through their sport cannot be replicated in the classroom. And, and, and those are the skills that, that, that I found have, have propelled me, you know, outside of the classroom. It's it's everything that I've learned through sport. Um, you you can study, you can educate yourself, you can become smarter. But the the raw skills of of having to do things like 
come back from hamstring, hamstring surgery, enter a competition knowing that you're not ready to win, but making sure that you win anyway, doing what you need to do at different steps to just kind of get through things. But then also setting yourself the challenge of trying to be the best um, and, and putting that pressure on yourself. You know, there's a lot of pressure that comes, you know, external, but, you know, yeah. to, to the great athletes, like we laugh at that kind of pressure because it's the ones, it's the pressure that we 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 have internally. That's the that's the stuff that makes us sleep, you know, lose sleep at night. Yeah. It's, it's not the fact that you know somebody else expects me to do something. It's I expect more of it from myself. Um, and you know, I always tell people, you know, we we talk about my my Rio Olympic year, um, and that was a huge public failure for me. You know, I came at 19 years old. Olympic final, you know, first Australian to run in the Olympic final, the 400 since Kathy Freeman. Um, you know, I had a lot, you know, on my plate and I had a lot of expectations yeah. for that next um, next Olympics in Rio, both from myself and, and from from the broader community, which is just part of part of parcel of, of being, being a professional athlete. And, you know, I end up missing the games. I don't qualify. Yeah. Um, just, uh, just a little shortcut here. Like, how was the media pressure on that for you like uh, i'm i'm very like into it and just like uh especially like for example in brazil we there's a lot of media pressure on those type of athletes like oh like he's the first uh on this he's the first on that oh and he didn't he didn't uh accomplish this and there's a lot of pressure like negative pressure not like positive yeah so if the athlete are he's a um, bronze medalist but that's not good enough for the media. He should be a, a gold medalist or something like that. How, how was the pressure for you? At that point in time, you know, I was able to kind of divert it a little bit because um, one of the, you know, fortunate things about being in athletics is like there are other great athletes in the team and, yeah. you know, they were able to kind of probably, you know, decompress some of the pressure that was coming onto me and, and actually, you know, talk more positively about other stories. But, you know, I'll never forget being at the London Olympics and, you know, the first question a reporter asked to Mitchell Watt, who um, was one of Australia's best long jumpers ever and won the silver medal was, are you disappointed? That was the first question that came to the guy who just won the silver medal at the Olympic games was, are you disappointed? And I remember Mitchell's oh, uh, response very clearly, you know, it was, I'm fanatic, man. I just won the silver medal at the Olympic Games. I'm really happy. My coach is really happy. My family is re really happy. The only people who seem to be unhappy are you. you. And and um, you know, so so the media the media goes you know in both ways. And and I think it's an important part of sport. You know, the media side of sport is very important important part. You know, the pressure like it's part and parcel with it. You know, we kind yeah. of expect it. Um, at the end of the day, we're in a competitive environment. There's winners and losers. It's pretty binary yeah. in that sense. So. You know, when I when I di didn't didn't qualify for Rio, you know that was a big failure. But you know what people were going to write about me in the newspapers was nothing to what I was feeling yeah, inside. Yeah. Um, oh, that's awesome. But you know, and I look back at that experience, and and it was just a big one of learning for me. Um, you know, we learn from our failures more than our successes. And before, when I'd heard that expression, you know, I'd laugh at it. Like, who wants like what? I don't understand what that means. And you know, even when I give talks to schools. You know, I give talks to schools quite often and, and I'll say, you know, who understands the expression, we learn more from our failures than we do our success. And like people put their hands up and I say, put your hands down. You don't know you what don't that know means. That. <laughs> because because what that, that what that Rio experience taught me was, was that lesson. Because when you fail at something, when you don't achieve, going back to the goals question that we did earlier, you're forced to analyze why. You know, I was forced to look at why did I miss the games? Regardless of the fact of it was four hundredths of a second and, you know, we couldn't, even comprehend i couldn't even comprehend what that time is yeah. 
but why did I fail? Um, and what that allowed me to do is that that allowed me to set a different situation up for the future. And I haven't missed a major team since then. I've, you know, ran in the Commonwealth Games final. Um, I, you know, I've, I've done all these great things uh, in myself since that failure that I wouldn't have gotten if I, if I had made the games, cause I'd be celebrating when we, when we succeed, we celebrate. And when we fail, when we fail, we have the opportunity to learn. So yes, it was a very, very painful lesson. It was a publicly painful lesson, yeah. but it was one that I think has given me more to my athletic career than probably any other moment outside of making the Olympic final at 19, um, oh. that I've gotten. Yeah. You sound like a man who reads a lot of self-help books. Uh, I read a lot of books and, and yeah, nonfiction <laughs> is certainly a favorite of mine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you were showing me earlier, you've got six books that you're reading at one time. That's, uh, man, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to do that. Uh, it's, you know, you know during, on, on that comment, it's like, I, I really enjoy reading, but I'm not always in the mood to read Cicero and, you know, ancient Rome, like, you know, yeah, yeah. sometimes I want to read something else. So I, yeah. I have a bunch of books. So you have the, the options. Time. I have so, the options. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, not today, not today. Oh, this one. That's yeah. right. Because <laughs> I do love reading and I value reading very highly. So if I'm just reading one thing that I'm not really into, I'll, I'll you know, I'll close it and then then reading stops. Whereas if oh, I have yeah. a bunch of books open at the same time, that makes I'll, sense. I'll find something and, and eventually I'll find the energy to return to something that for whatever reason I'd put down in the past. Yeah. I find that to be very true yeah yeah awesome all right man this has been an awesome episode i really appreciate you taking the time out in our new studio <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much guys for for trekking all the way here i uh, i really value your time and and what you're doing both in this podcast for yourselves you know i think you know everyone needs to realize that that what you're doing is not easy um you know having and holding these conversations is not easy understanding the guests the setup which you guys can't see as well as I can see is, is phenomenal. Um, so oh, you guys, you. You, you're, thanks, not, you, yeah, <laughs> you're not just doing it, you know, you're not just doing it as a, as a project, you're doing this as, you know, a profession and, you know, yeah. I, I have tremendous respect for that. And thank you again for, for, for making the time to be able to come to me today. And, and I, I really, really appreciate enjoy, I enjoyed it. And I, and I hope, um, I hope everyone else did as well. Yeah. All right. uh, so where do we find you? Instagram, Patreon? You can find me on Instagram. I'd love for you to join join the Patreon. Um, so that's patreon.com slash Stephen Solomon. I will put all the um, links in the description and put that's it, it, yeah. Pop it in yeah. the show notes. And uh, yeah, guys, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. Right. Thank you. Just give a shout out to our sponsors. I always forget the sponsors. Yeah. Good Buddy Sports and uh, Primal Human. The links will be in the description as well. All right. Thanks, Steve. That was thanks, Ben. Yeah. Thanks, boys. Good episode. See you.